Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 9. We will begin in verse 42 and go through verse 50. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. If you don't have your Bible with you or don't have one, uh, there's the Pew Bible. I encourage you to pick it up. We're actually going to look at it a little bit closely today. Um, It's on page 1005. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 42 through 50. Now, as you're flipping, uh, there's there's one note I want to give to you before we get into it. And that is, I said we're going to go 42 through 50, and we're going to go through those verses, but we're not going to read verse 44, and we're not going to read verse 46. Because, so in my translation, in the ESV and in our Pew Bibles, which is also the ESV, those verses are not located within this scripture. So you can go right now and you can find them. If your version does have it, they are probably in brackets, in which you will also find a note underneath that um, at one point, these two verses, they, they contain the same words as verse 48, which verse 48 says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, at one time, this was in, this was in the scripture, it was in the translations, and then we found an earlier manuscript, and we're, and we're blessed by God that he has kept those early manuscripts available to us where we can read in the Greek and the Hebrew, and we have found that verse 44 and 46 are not in the earlier manuscripts. That somewhere along the way, ascribed for emphasis, it didn't take away or add anything to it other than an emphasis, added those two verses after he talks about the hand and he talks about the foot to match what he talked about with the eye. And so that's just a note there, something to be aware of, and that's why we we have the Bible. That's why we hold it in our hands. That's why we read it for ourselves so we can see these things, take note of them, and then see what is missing so that we know what's there and we see how God's word is unchanging and how it fulfills our lives. And so now let us hear the words of Jesus found in Mark 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever comes, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell so the unquench- to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's scriptures like these that 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 we tense up when we come across because this sweet Jesus that we know who's so loving and so kind and that I just told you to go grab the book that tells his characters gentle and lowly is here 
saying it's better to put a millstone on your neck. It's better to cut off hands and feet and remove eyes. And so somehow it feels as if it doesn't match or if Jesus is being a little too harsh and tough and, and we don't exactly know how to deal with it in this moment. But here, Jesus is just continuing his teaching with the disciples. Remember, they had just been arguing about who's the greatest. And, and Jesus is trying to get at the very heart of the matter of why that is playing out, why that is a symptom among the disciples, that they must rank themselves as who's the better follower of Jesus. And he brings that little child in there and he holds him and he says, we are to welcome everyone as we welcome this child. And so he continues on in this teaching for what he calls us to, what he's calling his disciples as he's training them is extreme, and it's radical. It, it, it is far different than what every other voice other than Jesus is telling us in this world. And so Jesus here, again, deals with a couple more symptoms for that heart condition, that heart condition that he's laid on that, that is our, our sinful nature within our heart that has to be dealt with. And now he's dealing it with a real way, with people who really believe in Jesus. And, and so the first symptom in the way that it begins to show out into the world, one of the ways it shows, is that it can cause others to stumble. And so he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung on his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You know, Jesus makes it, perfectly clear with his instructions right here that it is, uh, it is bad, it is evil for one believer to go and cause another believer to sin. It, it, and the, now the way that's lived out, there's about three different ways. There's intentionally, explicitly tempting, soliciting, encouraging someone to sin and, and to engage in, in those sinful behaviors. There's implicitly by uh, just saying, yes, what the way you're living and what you want to go do, that's good. In fact, the, the implicit way is the way the, the world tells us to live. They, they say for us Christians, that's the real way of Christian love is that we're just to love them into their sin. And that's not what Jesus says. For with Jesus, the love always comes with the truth of the gospel. And so, and so implicitly, we may have caused someone to stumble because we never spoke the truth to them. Now, there are ways to speak the truth, and, and Paul clarifies how that's to be done in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is kind and love is patient, and love is not overbearing, it is not boastful, right? So there's a way that love and truth do interact together in the way that we go to other believers to speak that into them, but completely abdicating ourselves of that responsibility is to abdicate ourselves of our brothers and sisters that we no longer actually care for them. And then there's just also the influence of how we live. Right? The, the way we are living, people will see us and, and, and we take on the moniker, the name Christian, the follower of Christ, a believer in Jesus, a born-again Christian, and we have that moniker. And then by the very way that we live, we cause others to stumble and fall into sin because we have decided that in our hubris and our pride, right, this gets to that condition of the heart of our sin, that we can have our cake and eat it too. 
that we can believe in Jesus without giving up any of the sin in our life. We can make this perfectly okay. That, in fact, Jesus is really more fire insurance, and I'm just going to continue to live within the world. There's not much difference between a Christian and a person of the world if all you can see is where they spend one hour on Sunday. But see, we claim to be followers of Christ. And by doing so, we are not citizens of this world. But as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. And so we are a constant representation of heaven to others. Just as the Olympics were going on for a couple weeks, every athlete the United States sent over there and everyone they encountered from other places, they said, oh, this is what Americans are like. And so every time someone interacts with you, say, oh, this is what Christians are like. And Jesus says it's far better to have a giant millstone, one that only the donkey could pull to crush the grains, to hang around our neck and be thrown into the sea. And Matthew adds, into the deep, dark blue. And we can see that with our vivid imagination, by the way, that Jesus paints this picture for us with his words because we can imagine the very weight of that millstone dragging us to the floor of the sea, gasping for air and being crushed by its immense pressure in the darkness all alone. He says it would be better if that happened to you. And then he begins addressing the disciples, you, you know, just not causing someone else to sin, but now he begins addressing the sin in, in our own lives, in verse 43 and 45 and 47, right? He, he says it, it, in that the hand and the foot and the eye, if they cause you to sin, cut them off, get rid of them, for it's better for you to be mutilated, amputated, and lame than to enter, than, than to go to hell fully assembled. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that it is better for you to cut things off in your life and go towards heaven than it is to take on every worldly thing that you can and go to hell. This is Jesus' warning, and this is, these are his words. He's warning against hell. He says, what is at stake here? isn't just how we do life right now. What is at stake here isn't momentary inconveniences. What is at stake here is heaven and hell in your lives. And that's why he says what he says. Now, he's speaking in a metaphoric hyperbole. He doesn't actually expect us to go off and, and amputate our sinful body parts or go into physical self-mutilation but what he does want us to do is to look into our own hearts and we can't prevent anyone else from stumbling if we are still stumbling ourselves. Paul, when he writes his letter to the Romans, he addresses this as well. He talks about the glorious grace of Christ all in chapter 5. And he says, while we were yet sinners, God loved us and proved his love to us that Christ died for us. And that grace is there for us where the law wasn't. And he begins chapter 6 and he says, So should we go on, continue sinning so that grace may abound? Should we continue to sin so that God's grace is ever more present? So that maybe that's how he shows his glory. And Paul says, absolutely not by no means. 
you were baptized into Christ. You were dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so he's teaching and he's training the disciples that this is the very nature of what it means to follow him. Not only now, but remember, he's also foretold of his death and resurrection two times already. He's about to do it again a third time very soon. You know, Jesus talked about the narrow way. Now, we aren't much for foot travelers these days. We, we are more of super highway drivers. And so, and so maybe it's better for us to think about it in that there are guardrails up on the super highways, especially when there's dangerous cliffs around us. Not only that, but we also get the noise strips now. Hey, you're getting even closer. You haven't even begun to bump into where God would like you to stay yet. But here's some noise to try and get you back on track. And we often say, well, no, no, no. We can have our cake and eat it too. I can follow Jesus just fine and go on sinning. You know, I'll deal with this later. Grace will cover this. I'm fine. And essentially, we're trying to tell God that we can live without his God rails or that we we, we rage against God and say, how dare you have expectations of who your people would be like and how we are to live? And so we try and find those ways to justify the sin that we live with, that we can continue it on, that it's not hurting anyone. Nobody else really knows. I've got it under control. Whatever lie it is that Satan convinces us to tell ourselves or any way that we go into to try and rework God's word so that it says something different than what it says, to say that what we're doing is okay. Christ makes it clear. He says, without that guardrail, we would fly off into the dangerous cliff. Now, Jesus speaks of what's at stake, heaven and hell, and he makes it clear in the New Testament. Jesus speaks about hell 11 times in the New Testament. And here in this instance, the word he uses for hell is Gashan. And, and, and this word is the Valley of Himron. It's outside the city of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, we hear about it. It's a place where pagans would gather and make child and and people's sacrifices to God, they would burn them for God. And so people would also call it the Valley of the Drums, for the drums would be banging to drown out the screams of the children. And it wouldn't be until King Josiah comes along, the good king as we know of him, and, and he comes and he outlaws it, and he turns that place into a dump. It, literally a dump where all the garbage and the sewage and the waste goes, and that there's a 24-7 consuming fire of all of that waste. So Jesus uses the word Gashan so that we, that, that his hearers, that the disciples would know that when he talks of hell, he's talking of a place with a consuming fire, and that's why he says where the worms continue and they are never consumed by the quenching fire, that it is a tormentuous place and that it is very real. Because that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake in all of this. 
ministry, he says, we've got to really look at our heart. When we see symptoms of us causing someone else to stumble, or when we see symptoms that we find ourselves okay with, the own, with our own sin that we're living in and not dealing with as if we want to have our cake and eat it too, he's trying to direct us to go back to our heart. And he, and he goes on and he talks about salt. And he, and he says, everyone is salted with fire, right? In, in other places we hear of the refiner's fire. That's, that's kind of what he's talking about here, that we will be disciplined, that we, there is a plan for us in how we are to be. Now, the mistake we often make is we get anxious because we're suddenly not perfect right away, right? We can get anxiety like, oh my gosh, I am sinning in my life and I don't have it all together. I am not good enough. But what this is, is this is a grace in process that comes here, that we are still a work in process into perfection, and we find that perfection upon glorification when we reach glory with the Father. And so we'll still have sin in our lives, but Christ sent his Spirit to dwell within us. And Paul says that that he dwells within us so that we can put our sin to death. You see, we don't have the power on our own to kill sin and get it out of our lives, but we have the power of God in us through his spirit to put sin to death so that we can walk with him. And he says, and what will you do if salt loses its saltiness? How will you bring it back to being salt? Now, if you're a scientist, you know that salt is a really stable mineral, that by itself it never really loses the property of being salt, that it takes other things being mixed with it so that it loses its properties of salt. And now in Jesus' time, there were various kinds of salts because there was additives to them, and there wasn't the, the purest of pure salt always available. And so when they didn't have the pure salt available, that salty that salt would lose its saltiness. It, wouldn't, it would lose its ability to preserve the meats. It would lose its ability to bring flavor into the world. And Jesus calls us to be the salt and light to the world, to be the flavor, to help preserve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how will you make salt salty once again when it's lost its saltiness? Well, as Jesus is calling his disciples and he's calling us, into godliness, into holiness, into obedience. We come to this stark realization very quickly. We aren't perfect. And in fact, on our own, we can never make pure salt. That the one who is perfect, the one who is pure, the one who is righteous is Christ Jesus. And he was sent in the midst of our rebellion to redeem us back to God and to provide the salt within us, to preserve us, to give us flavor, so that when we go out into the world, rather than causing others to stumble, we let the salt of Christ out to others. but it's hard to do when we don't address our own heart first. And so 
for the followers of Christ. He says this. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He gives instructions on how to live. He, he tells us the dangers of the way we are living and then says, have salt in yourselves. And the only source of pure salt in this world is Christ Jesus. He is it. He came sinless and perfect to live and die on the cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness so that we would be made righteous before God. And so that one day, when someone does a Google search on Christians that says Christians are, it won't pop up hypocrites. But it'll pop up those who care with love and truth. Because there we find that in that kindness, and that patience, and that gentleness, and that encouraging one another, lifting each other up, we find exactly what Christ did for us. He didn't stomp us down. He didn't push us to the side. He grabbed us by our hand and pulled us through. Have salt in yourself. Amen.